Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk Doc to Doc podcast, a conversation for physicians by physicians, providing insight on the latest in medical practice, research, technology, and innovation in healthcare. Join Baptist Health experts as they offer practical advice for clinicians covering a wide range of specialties. Cancer, neuroscience, orthopedics, and cardiovascular care are just some of the timely discussions you'll find right here on the Doc to Doc podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Doctor Doctor podcast featuring the Miami Neuroscience Institute. And I'm your host for tonight's event. My name is Michael McDermott, and I'm here with Dr. Guillermo Debus to discuss cerebral aneurysms. Dr. Debus, thank you for volunteering your time for tonight's podcast. Dr. McDermott, this is my pleasure. It's great to be here. Let's have a great conversation. All right. So, um, as you know, I'm the senior most member of the Miami Neuroscience Institute. Been in the asked to help develop the department and the treatment of cerebral aneurysms and its evolution uh, that we've seen over the last 40 years. In fact, I've actually asked one of our visiting lecturers to come and speak about the evolution of cerebrovascular surgery in the inaugural first Charles Drake cerebrovascular lectureship here at Miami Neuroscience Institute. Um, first of all, could you tell the audience a little bit about the different types of aneurysms and their frequency in the population? Of course, of course. So when we're talking about intracranial aneurysms, they're basically two types of presentation. I think that's more important to focus really on the types of presentation of the intracranial aneurysms and a little bit on the different types of them. So when you have a brain aneurysm, basically you're going to be diagnosed with either an unruptured aneurysm, which basically a lot of times is an incidental finding. So the aneurysm was found because you're having an imaging study done for other reasons, such as maybe headaches or unrelated or dizziness or memory loss. And then you have the types that are really the most dangerous ones, which basically when the patient presents with what we call like a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is when the aneurysm had bled. So, you know, basically uh, blood leaked out of the aneurysm into the brain or adjacent uh, structures from the brain, you know, and becomes like a uh, really like a medical emergency that needs to be fixed usually like as an emergency. Uh, when you're talking about brain aneurysm in general, there's a slightly increased incidence in women compared to men. So this and this uh, incidence, increased incidence, persists when the aneurysm ruptures. So in subarachnoid hemorrhage, the incidence is also slightly higher in women. In general, when we're talking about population, we're talking to patients about intracranial aneurysms. The the overall prevalence, meaning like how many people are just walking around with an aneurysm that we that may you know about it or not, is usually about two to five percent of the whole entire population carry a brain aneurysm. So you can see a lot of people are just walking around with aneurysms, and most of those aneurysms actually will never rupture. The problem is that we don't know which ones will rupture and the ones that that will never rupture. So when we're seeing those patients, a lot of times it comes a decision, we use some risk factors we're going to discuss further ahead. Now, when we're talking about the aneurysms that rupture, so the ones that really present with the catastrophic, what we call subarachnoid hemorrhage, when again, when blood can leakage outside of the aneurysm, the incidence of those it's somewhere between six to twelve per one hundred thousand people. So, in other words, you see here, just doing a quick math, that most of the aneurysms will never rupture. Now, there's a very interesting data that is very recent in the literature. It seems that the number or the incidence of aneurysms that rupture is actually decreasing over the years. And this number was a little bit higher in the '80s, and now apparently it's a little bit lower, close to the seven to every uh, one hundred thousand patients. 
The reason for this, we really don't know for sure. It could be related to lifestyle changes, a lot of like less smoking, for example, and also to increased number of andros that are found before the rupture that have been treated. So there are a lot of things that are very, very interesting. Now, of course, when the aneurysms are found incidentally, a lot of times they're not really causing any symptom. And when the aneurysm rupture, which is when, again, the blood leaked outside the aneurysm, a lot of times the patients present with what they call, what, what we call the worst headache of their lives. So the patient is experiencing a headache that he has never felt before. Even patients with migraine, they know it's a different type of hemorrhage. Sometimes it can have associated other neurological symptoms, weakness, problems to speak, somnolence. And some patients, unfortunately, that have aneurysms that bleed will unfortunately not make a life to the hospital. About like 15 to 20% of those patients, unfortunately, do have that. So as, as we discussed, the aneurysms are a serious condition, but thankfully, a lot of those aneurysms will actually never cause a problem. So it's really to the, the group treating the patient to really determine if that's an aneurysm that needs to be treated when it's an unruptured aneurysm, and when the aneurysm is ruptured, what is the best way to treat that aneurysm? Okay, thank you. One of the um, developments that's been going on at a more basic level has been mathematical modeling of aneurysms and the hemodynamic flow patterns and stresses in the branching points of blood vessels that may be responsible for the development of sacular aneurysms. Um, has this research been helpful for you to counsel patients as to the risk of aneurysm rupture and making decisions about treatment or observation? And do you use special imaging studies that allow you to um, model the stresses, et cetera, uh, in order to counsel patients? Well, Michael, I think that's a very good question. There has been a lot of studies, recent studies that, you know, using computational fluid dynamics, uh, shear stress on aneurysm wall that actually point out some interesting findings. For example, you know, some branching aneurysm or aneurysm located in bifurcations have increased risk of rupture potentially because the pressure in the aneurysm wall or, or uh, the shear stress is increased. Now, a lot of those studies are not 100% clinically validated and they're not available, you know, in commercial scanners, for example. So a lot of times we require like really research studies and specific protocols and software to really look into uh, those type of, of um, calculations and imaging, right? So, but, you know, we use the, what we know or what we learn from those studies to really advise the patient about, like, for example, treatment of unruptured aneurysm. Now, considering that aneurysm that had already ruptured, you know, needs to be treated. So this discussion is more relevant really to the patients that, you know, discover like an, an aneurysm that is incidental. And we're going to discuss further ahead again. There's some other uh, data that we use from many years of uh, of data and gathering studies and understanding what those data you know mean really to to advise the patient what's the best way to deal with, with their aneurysm. So one of the questions that comes up uh, relates to imaging as to whether or not CT angiography, MR angiography, for example, is as good as conventional catheter angiography for defining anatomy and assisting with decisions about treatment for different types of aneurysms. Could you comment on this for some of the patients that might be listening? Absolutely. So the non-invasive neuroimaging, particularly speaking about CT angiography or MR angiography, which are basically the CT and MRs done specifically to look at the blood vessels in the patient's brain, had evolved tremendously over the last 10, 15 years with the imaging capability becoming pretty good. Um, I wouldn't say exactly the same as of a diagnostic 
you know, catheter angiography, which is the minimally invasive way to study the blood vessels in the brain. And why I'm saying that? Because there also has been like significant advancements and the, the, uh, the procedure itself, the catheter-based angiography also became much safer. You know, we do 3D rotation. We can do actually what we call a cone beam CTs with the catheter angiography, which actually has probably one of the best spatial resolutions that one can have. But no question that CT angiography and MR angiography are playing like very important role when we're talking about intracranial aneurysms. Those are great screening uh, methods. For example, if you're having headaches or if you have a history of aneurysm, you know, that's a very good way to follow up aneurysm or to get a first study. Sometimes before you're really deciding if an aneurysm needs to be treated or not, a lot of times we end up still doing diagnostic cerebral angiography because, again, it's important to really understand the size of the vessel, really look into the aneurysm with some resolution that sometimes the CT angiography and the MR angiography cannot really give us. For example, if there are irregularities in the, in the wall of the aneurysm, what's the size of the parent vessel, meaning the vessel where the aneurysm arises from, if there are branches close to the aneurysm or arising from the neck of the aneurysm that sometimes cannot be seen on, uh, on the non-invasive tests such as the MR angiography or the, or the CT angiography. So I would say that those tests a lot of times are complementary, but there's no question that a lot of our patients are actually are followed after treatments, for example, only with MRA or CTA because you know they really don't require a lot of angiograms for follow-up because it's an invasive test and we want to avoid it as much as possible. However, you know all those tests still play an important role for the management of intracranial aneurysms. Okay, thanks, Dr. Boos. Let's talk about uh, treatment options now, and specifically in your specialty of endovascular therapy, and maybe just tell the audience how endovascular coiling is um, different than craniotomy for clipping of an aneurysm. Of course, of course. I think that's a very important point. So basically, historically, aneurysms have been treated with something that we call you know, craniotomy and microsurgical clipping of the aneurysm, where basically the neurosurgeon does a craniotomy. You know, he opens the bone, he goes into the spaces of the brain, and he puts a clip that pretty much strangles the neck of the aneurysm and blocks completely the blood flow to the aneurysm using a titanium clip. Now, with the evolution of the devices and techniques, basically, you know, endovascular start to become like a very important player on the treatment of intracranial aneurysm. Basically, endovascular means that the aneurysm has been treated through inside the blood vessel. So a lot of times what we do, we put a catheter, which is this plastic tube that goes either through the groin or to the wrist of the patient. And we navigate, you know, micro catheters to where the aneurysm, and we treat the aneurysm with like several different devices that we have available nowadays. Now, the first device really was a device that we call uh, a coil, which is basically a platinum coil, which is inserted to these tiny tubes and basically blocks the flow that is going to the aneurysm. And this was initially developed in the early 90s, actually at UCLA by a, a, an Italian neurosurgeon called Guido Guglielmi, and hence the name, you know, detachable coil, Guglielmi detachable coil, its initial name, which was GDC. And this was actually approved by the FDA in 1995. So since 1995, we're treating the aneurysm through endovascular means, which is minimally invasive, it's less invasive than the open surgery. And that's its main advantage. Nowadays, throughout this last 20, 25, 30 years, there has been a lot of, uh, you know, advancements in the endovascular coils, in the devices. Now we have stents that we use to coil aneurysms. We have balloons that we use to do balloon remodeling, what we call. We have also like flow diverters, which is a special type of stent that is placed in the parent vessel or the artery where the aneurysm arises from and kind of 
deviates the blood flow from the away from the aneurysm and basically cures those aneurysms and actually allows us to treat aneurysms that before were not really possible to treat. We have intrasacular flow di uh, diverters, which uh, basically it's a type of flow diverter that we place inside the aneurysm. And the advantage of that is that you don't need to put the patients on medications that thin, that thin their blood, like uh, uh, antiplatelet agents. So the advancements of the endovascular field over the last 20, 25, 30 years have really, really been tremendous. And with that really allows us to treat patients that sometimes even like five, 10 years ago, we're not, in a, you know, we're not being treated or we're not able to treat them. So that has been really, really marvelous for our patients. Okay, um, very good. Thanks. Um, so, what about an unruptured aneurysm? What what patient aneurysm factors do you consider when rec making recommendations about treatment? Yeah, Michael, I think this is probably the most important topic because, as I mentioned, a lot of the patients are walking around with aneurysms, and those aneurysms will probably never cause them a problem. The only issue is that we don't know the ones that will cause a problem or not. So, we need to use the data that we have from the literature that basically will tell us which aneurysms, you know, have a higher chance of rupturing compared to others. So, you know, the, the main, the most important thing here is actually the size of the aneurysm. Size and location you know, when it comes to the aneurysm is the most important. So aneurysms that start to get bigger than five, six, seven millimeters start to be concerning and increase the risk of rupture. The other thing is the location of the aneurysm. Some specific locations of the aneurysm inside the, the, the brain or in locations in the blood vessels in the brain have a higher chance of rupturing, such as aneurysms in the anterior communicating or posterior communicating regions. So those are the aneurysms that are more concerning and we tend to be more aggressive with it. The other things is if the patient has family history, of intracranial aneurysm, of most important family history of inter ruptured intracranial aneurysm, that makes it more, you know, a higher risk of aneurysm rupture. So those aneurysms are usually treated more aggressively. The other thing is if the patient has uh, problems with the blood vessels, some genetic conditions such as Allard-Danlos, uh, for example, or polycystic kidney disease may increase the risk of aneurysms and aneurysm rupture. So that we, we tend to treat those patients more aggressively. All right. So uh, we've been talking primarily about um, unruptured aneurysms to this point, but an ruptured aneurysms are a completely different situation and potentially life-threatening illness. So for our audience, just to let you know how potentially bad a ruptured aneurysm can be, um, many parents, many patients with who uh, experience ruptured aneurysm will experience sudden death and never make it to hospital alive. Another 20% will die from rehemorrhage or complications during the hospital stay. 20% will get something called cerebral vasospasm, narrowing of blood vessels from irritation from the subarachnoid blood. And 20% will end up with uh, something called hydrocephalus, obstruction of cerebral spinal fluid circulation or drainage requiring a shunt. So when you have a patient with a ruptured aneurysm, how quickly do you proceed with endovascular treatment following the admission of the patient to hospital with acute subarachnoid hemorrhage? So when you have, when you're facing an aneurysm that ruptures, so the subarachnoid hemorrhage is already, you know, in place, of course, the first thing that needs to be taken care of is the most urgent things, make sure the, the pressure inside the, the skull is relieved, right? So if the patient has what we call like hydrocephalus, is usually, you know, there's a catheter that needs to be placed uh, and it's usually done by neurosurgeon just to relieve the pressure inside the, the brain. And then the aneurysm is usually treated or what we call secured 
within the first 24 hours after the hemorrhage. That's that's the goal for us. So basically, if the patient comes in in the middle of the night, he's probably going to be treated first thing in the morning. Sometimes, depending on the situation, um, you know, or even earlier than that. But most of the time, that's uh, we the Andrews will be secure in the first 24 hours. Now, one of the things that's important too, you know, a lot of these patients do have other risk factors for Andrews rupture, such as hypertension and smoking. And that also plays a, a factor when you're talking about, you know, the chances of those patients having a good outcome after the subarachnoid hemorrhage. But, you know, again, with the patients should be secured, the Andrews should be secured within the first 24 hours after the rupture. Okay, good. So um, cerebral vasospasm, as we just discussed, is a phenomenon that occurs after release of blood into the subarachnoid space. And the risk of vasospasm is proportional to the amount of that subarachnoid blood. Now, we have grading scales for trying to determine this risk, but um, how do you treat um, a vasospasm uh, for a patient that arrives under your care? So it's important to understand that vasospasm is very common in patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage. Actually, 70% of the patients will develop some angiographic finding of vasospasm, but only about 30% of those patients actually do require more aggressive types of treatment, uh, including like interventional treatment. So the first thing that really we do if there's, we're suspecting a patient is having vasospasm, there's something that can be done clinically. You know, the patient is always taking nimodipine, which, you know, increases the chance of the patient having a good outcome, although it doesn't necessarily affect the blood vessels itself. Uh, but we have uh, other things that we do. For example, we do induced hypertension, meaning we increase the blood pressure of the patient, we increase the fluids of the patient. Uh, and those those things can increase or decrease the risk of this patient become like symptomatic from the vasospasm. Now, when they become symptomatic, then we do, again, a catheter-based procedure. And then there are a couple of things can be done. We can inject some medication that basically relax the wall of the vessel, which are vasodilators, and basically the vessel dilates back to its normal size. And when the situation is really bad and sometimes the patients are not really responding to the vasodilators anymore, then we do what we call like angioplasty, which basically we put a tiny catheter, again, all through the groin or through endovascular techniques, and we dilate these tiny balloons inside the blood vessel just to expand it. And that usually is a pretty good types of, type of treatment for, for intracranial vasospasm and usually resolves it you know, immediately. All right. So can you tell us, Dr. Deboos, uh, about the team you have in place at Baptist Health South Florida for the care of and management of patients with cerebral aneurysms? I think here at Baptist Health, we're lucky to have really a complete team, like complete uh, team of specialists to really can take care of unruptured as well as ruptured aneurysms. So we have interventionalists, we have cerebrovascular neurosurgeons, neurointensivists, uh, rehab people to take care of after the patients, uh, you know, recover from all the acute phase and really are getting ready to be discharged, going resume their, you know, their life activities. I think we're we're really lucky uh, to have all the disciplines really working together in pro to what's the best for the patient. So not necessarily only the interventional part or coiling, but also the neurosurgical part. Sometimes patients uh, are referred for surgery because the endovascular treatment may not be the best for them. So we really have the whole you know, team here really ready to take care of the patients, really do what's the best for them, which to me is the most important thing, and really trying to provide them the best outcome possible. All right. Well, Dr. DeBoos, thank you for your time. And I hope the audience found this information useful and helpful. Ladies and gentlemen, please stay tuned for uh, another announcement or of another podcast from Miami Neuroscience Institute. 
in the near future and please follow us on the website and thank you very much for your attention to find out more about the topics covered on the doc to doc podcast please visit physicianresources.baptisthealth.net